0: Um, I had a question about uh, the the passage that you were teaching in connection with James 2. James 2. Verse 5, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom?
1: That is an interesting issue. Um, what's, what's tough is, on the one hand... I, we, were, we were talking about this before, um, before the ABF. On the one hand, I I think that even out of our passage where Jesus says, "Look, yeah, you're right. With man, it's impossible." It, you know, elsewhere in, in Jeremiah, can the leopard change its spots? So can you, who are accustomed to doing evil, do good? Um, can people who love the darkness hate the darkness? I think it takes a work of God in the heart. And so, in one sense, it's kind of binary: either God removes the veil. Either God takes out the heart of stone and replaces it with heart of flesh. Either God gives eyes to see and ears to hear or he doesn't, right? So in one sense, it seems very like yes or no. Either God works in the heart or he doesn't. And yet, you get passages that seem to emphasize that, that it's harder for the rich to get saved. The poor, I mean, if God exalts the humble, it seems biblically, I think you could say, that, it, that the poor tend to be closer to humility Not that all the poor are humble, but and the the rich tend to be harder and more proud. And certainly they've got more reasons to hope in this world, right? I mean, your bank account, if you've got money in there, is telling you it's the rich man. Soul, take your ease. You're well provided for. You have no worries. You have, you know, and so, yeah. And so James talks about, yeah, by and large in the church history. I mean, go to go to First Corinthians chapter one, where Paul. In the context, talking about election, says something very similar. First um, Corinthians chapter one, verse twenty-six. And you're going to see three times God chose. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful according to. Not many were noble of birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So even in the context, we emphasize God chose, God chose, God chose, consider your calling. God chose in a way where there's a disproportionate number in the church of poor, nothings, and nobodies. And that's part of the plan. So that people don't go, oh, the Christians are the rich, smart people. No, they, God gets the glory. But I don't fully know how that fits together, but they both seem to be biblically true. Um, you know, but were you going with more with that, or is that enough rambling for you?
0: Well, I had one other question. Oh, okay. And, and along the same lines, uh, and I wasn't here when, when you gave. Uh, the exposition of this, but Luke six twenty, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And that's, that's often I've seen in my reading connected to Matthew 5 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Right. Is that an incorrect correlation?
1: No. In fact, that was one of the, the, the challenges when I taught through this is I'm committed to the notion that Luke wrote an intelligible letter to Theophilus. Theophilus didn't need his copy of Matthew on hand to make sense of Luke. But I think even in the Beatitudes, you get evidences of what type of poverty and what type of sorrow we're talking about. Um, And so, no, I think what Matthew says, what Luke says, perfectly harmonized, and I think you can even argue that from within Luke itself on Luke's own terms. So you've got, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you'll be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people... Hate you and they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. So all of this poverty and all of this weeping and all of this, um, what is it? Poor, weep, hunger, hunger is in relationship to Jesus. He's not just saying poor people go to heaven all over the world. It's in It has to be in relationship to Jesus on account of the Son of Man. Um, Rejoice and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so your fathers did to the prophets. But woe to those who are rich, for they have received their consolation. Woe to those who are full now. But I do think you see the notion of why having this world's possessions makes it so much harder because you don't sense your lack. You don't sense your emptiness. You're good, and I can take care of myself. I mean, has anyone here in this room, don't tell me, ever had to really pray for that day's food that day because they didn't know where it's coming from? That's what Jesus thought. Like Because of our wealth, we just don't live near there. Um, and yet that's how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. If you aren't sure where your food's coming from today, you're aware of your need. I assure you, you're aware of your need. And so the implication here is if you're rich, if you're full, if you're full of good cheer, watch out. You're gonna have a real hard time humbling yourself. Um, and anyway, that, that's, that's my thoughts on, on that. That's how he starts out the... Um, the sermon on the plain there, um, which I think is a different event than what he says in Matthew. In the ser- and Matthew goes up onto a mountain. Here he came down from a mountain to a flat place. So I don't think Matthew and Luke are recording the same event. I think this is the type of sermon Jesus preached everywhere he went, and so it's not surprising that we have very similar accounts. But there's enough difference in the details that I don't think it's the same thing, but anyway. Um, other questions?
2: Yeah, I'm not sure how to formulate this. You refer back to Luke 14 and um, what one needs to give up to be a disciple or forsake to be a disciple, and then we haven't quite finished this passage, I know, about yeah. um, leaving father, mother, family, and so on. Yeah. I'm just wondering if you put that into perspective. That sounds harsh. I mean, okay, um, if I'm really committed to Christ, then I need to leave these people next to me and, and go off somewhere. or I mean, that sounds irresponsible. Oh, no. and, you, and you don't, yeah. uh, I'm sure you've never counseled someone. No, you know no, what your no. problem is? You just need to leave your wife and family and go follow Christ. So what is, how do you get that in perspective? How do I know if I'm doing it if I haven't really left them? And
1: what so it on? means is I believe, and he's using hyperbole. He's using hyperbole. Um, if you have to choose between the two, you choose me. So this is where it shows up all the time in, in marital counseling. If I do this, I'm gonna provoke my spouse Well, who do you fear more, your spouse or God? Do what is right. If I do this, it's going to make things worse, not better. Obey God, fear God. Um, If I do this, my kids won't like me, especially if you're dealing with parents who have a divorce where there's this strong desire of competition. If I hold them to Christian standards and discipline them, they're not going to like that. Fear God, don't fear your kids. So I think it shows up all over the place. It's not... Jesus puts in absolute terms... Because I, I love this about him, because there's, no there's no bait and switch. There's no bait and switch at all. Now, once you have a wife and kids, you have a commitment to them. And I've actually read stories of missionaries who left them back home for years. I, I don't agree with that. I, I think they're disobeying clear biblical commands to, to, to teach, to train, to love, to cherish, to nurture, all those things. I don't comprehend how that's done faithfully. But yeah, I think there's plenty of situations where I have to choose who's more important to me. Do I want God's favor or my wife's favor? Do I want um, God's um, delight or my children's delight? And I, I do think that shows up frequently. And so Jesus, using hyperbole and extreme examples, makes it crystal clear which one he expects you to choose. Um, Just a little
2: follow-up. Um, oh, he does use it. the word leave, have left, and then... Um this is stealing your thunder from next time, but uh, <laughs> the disciples said, well, we've done that. I mean, evidently, Peter was married, but it seems his wife perhaps wasn't with them, but I don't know.
1: Yeah, not, not here. He was back in chapter 4 where Peter's mother-in-law, um, mother-in-law. Now, for, for the disciples, you do have a situation which is rather unique. Jesus has a three-year ministry. And he calls these guys to full-time following. like, that's their new job. Peter doesn't spend his days fishing. He spends his days with Jesus. So there's a very real sense in which I'm sure as Jesus travels around, Peter's gone for days at a time, weeks at a time, maybe even. This isn't an indefinite thing. We know from Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 that as Peter went on his ministry, he took along his wife with him. So he didn't, this wasn't a full-time, I leave my family. But for these three years, yeah, I'm sure Peter's wife, and if he had children, didn't see a ton of them. And so Peter can say, Yeah, we've left everything to follow you. So following Jesus prior to the cross in this period of time literally meant following him around. It doesn't mean that today. Like it's not like we gotta well, we ought to go over there because Jesus walked Indianola, so we gotta go to Indianola. That's not what following Jesus looks like now. So there is a very real following that's taking place in the gospels that doesn't get replicated this side of the cross. Does, does that make sense? But no, so Peter can say, and the disciples can really say, We have left everything to follow you. Like, I had a fishing business, don't know what's become of it. Now, he's able to pick it back up after the crucifixion because Jesus finds him fishing. But I don't know what happened there if another of his nephew or if his son or if his brother took over for him, but he left it and he just left and Levi, left his tax franchise. And so So for them, when Jesus says, come follow me, and literally, I'm heading down that road, you're coming with me or not, there's a very real, literal sense in which they are following him that you and I are not. But um, I can still think of examples today where um, following Jesus might create issues and create division and create problems. Um, Probably the simplest one I'm aware of is, um, and I've seen this happen a couple times, is with parents with uh, re- rebellious children, and you, you have to make the decision, do I, do I toe the line, which will probably lead to the kid leaving the house, that probably isn't gonna go well, or do I sue for peace, you know? But I've seen people be faithful, and th- it separates them, and I've seen people compromise. But that, those are the examples that come most to my mind. But does that get where you're getting at? Or? Yeah, I do not think there's any scenario where a person is forced to choose to really abandon their family. C.S. C. Lewis puts it this way: frequently, if you're, especially if you're the only Christian in your family, your family will accuse you and, and treat you as though you hate them. And I've I've had that happen to me. You know, I took a stand with one of my siblings, and how can you be so mean? How can you be so harsh? I mean, right? Um, so, yeah, it, they thought it was hatred. So I just, I just appreciate the fact that Jesus, um, by turning it up to 11 and giving the most extreme example, it covers everything. You, do, you don't get to plead special circumstances. Well, I know that Jesus says this normally, but you see, no. He said hate and leave. So anything less than that is covered. That, that's, that's, my, that's my thought. I mean, maybe the modern-day equivalent would be whether or not you go to a, a child's, you know, um, Gay marriage or something. Do you go to the wedding or not? I don't want to make them hate me. I don't want to. It simply boils down to, do you think God wants me to or not? Whether or not your kid's going to be upset or hate you doesn't enter into it because of passage like this. You know, if they're going to hate me and God wants me to be faithful and not do that, I won't. So I'm not trying to resolve the issue as much as say the issue doesn't. What it's going to do to your relationship doesn't factor into it. It's what has God called me to do. It's all that matters. Um, Lee. Needs a microphone.
3: Um, I remember when I was <clears throat> became a Christian uh, in the '70s, many moons ago, and there was a book or something, and there was this always this picture that stuck in my mind, and it was a circle of kind of like your life, and there was a throne on it. And the question is, what's on the throne or who is on the throne? And I think that can relate to what Dave's asking about that, well, is my family and peace in the family? Is that the number one thing in my life that I'm willing to do anything for or, you know, pretty much anything? Or is is Christ on the throne that really I am? He's he's the king as he claims to be. And what am I going to do about it then? So that always kind of helps me keep it clear. The throne, who's on that throne?
1: (laughs) Well, and and one of the things we know about our God is a jealous God. He has a nasty habit of smashing idols, so you don't just sit and like lay awake at night. Have I made my kids an idol? If you have, and you're God's child, He'll show you. He'll show you generally right quick. Um, so, yeah, we can we can make things other things God. Now, let me. This sort of goes off what you're saying, but it's also just an idea I was having. I to unpack further. To go back to the issue of is it appropriate, is it right to, to include in the gospel a call to repentance or cost counting? I want to use this analogy. If you don't, you have the ridiculous scenario where you would welcome someone into the church. Let's take the rich young say the rich young ruler's problem wasn't money; it was uh, adultery. That's his problem. Give up your, forsake your paramour, come follow me. You know, which is basically Augustine's conversion, um, and. Say, no, we don't address that. Do you want the free gift? I want the free gift. What's going to happen the very next week when they gather? Church discipline's going to begin. Which concludes with what? We treat them like a tax collector. Like, that's bait and switch. You never said anything to me coming in on the entrance door that there was any expectation or demand that I had to follow Jesus. And now you're excluding me from your ranks because I won't? It's completely inconsistent. Um, no, Jesus did not bait and switch. Um, so that's, that, that's the issue. And it's not that Christians are perfect, but when God puts his finger on us in some area of your life, either you stop saying no, and sometimes he has to really put his finger on it, right? Um, but his children, ultimately, his sheep hear his voice and fall, and they say, okay. And the person who hardens their heart and says, no, absolutely not, eventually brings into question their entire profession of faith. Because that can't—that's what I mean when I said this morning. If you will not—not not if you struggle with it, not if you—but if you know and that doesn't change, you're going to hell. Like, and you could fill in the blank with anything. It doesn't have to be money. If you will not give up your your drug of choice, if you will not give up your fornication, whatever it is, fill in the blank. That's your God, and it'll take you to hell. Now the good news is the good shepherd gets his sheep. He leaves the ninety-nine. He goes but frequently there's discipline involved.
3: Yeah, I was thinking about how I've heard the breaking
1: legs <laughs> yeah. scenario, yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, yeah.
3: yeah I, I've seen yeah. that, and yeah, my yeah. legs
1: are good these days, so very good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, 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 so, yeah, yeah. Anybody else, we've got another half hour here. I can tell stories, I suppose, but. Renee. I
2: think on the other hand, just yes. to present another side, yes, as in ma'am. the Philippian jailer, that he didn't need to hear count the cost. And Absolutely. the upfront stuff. So I think then if you're truly a child of God and he has called you and you are his, you will feel things and layer oh. by layer, you'll be peeled away. And you might have coarse, coarse speech or something first. And you're right. going to say, "Oh man, that is not fitting for a child of God. And Amen. then he peels away that layer, not that you wouldn't struggle with that again, but it's like layer by layer, it's peeled away, and no one had to say, well, count the cost, you're going to have to give up all these right. things, you're going to have to follow me, this is like, they, he never had to say that, because he really was authentically following right. Christ, and those layers will be peeled away as the Holy Spirit reveals
1: them to him. Yeah, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying stop evangelizing like Acts 16 and adopt Luke 18 as now the new model. All I'm saying is apparently both are appropriate. And the challenge is knowing who you're dealing with. If, if you meet somebody who's broken and like the Philippian jailer, what do I do? What do I turn to? Who don't, Do you know you're a sinner? <laughs> yeah, no, take them right to the cross. Take them right to Jesus. Um, if you're dealing with someone, like, um, I'll give you the example of my, my, one of my best friends growing up. He was in my band. Um, when, after I became a Christian, he sort of investigated it. And he concluded it was Jeremy. I think it's true. I just want to party for two or three more years. And I didn't say to him, no, you can do both. I, I respected the fact that he understood implicitly, if I become a Christian, I can't keep going out and getting drunk every night. Um, so I didn't have to say anything about counting the cost. He just, that just clicked. That just made sense for him. But I think he's right. I think he understood, like the, like the rich young ruler. The sad thing is, over the next three years, his heart hardened, and he's one of the most ardent atheists I know now. But there's a moment in time, similar to the rich young ruler, where he saw, it, got it, he understood what was right and true, and said, just give me a couple more years of my fun, and then I'll come around. Um, and so that's a place where you know Jesus' approach here would be fitting. And I think the, the challenge is, again, knowing who you answer. Peter tells his readers to um, season your words with salt so that you know how to answer every man. And I think, yeah, if you, if you come down hard on the Philippian jailer, you're going to bruise this bent reed. Jesus doesn't break a bent reed. He doesn't put on a smoldering wick. Um, so when you've got the weak and the meek, and the broken, you you deal tenderly with them, and Jesus had no problem taking a stick out, and, and, or literally making a whip, and the proud, and the self-righteous, and smashing them, and of course, the tragedy would be if he did that to the weak, and the poor, and the the broken, so we're looking in Luke, at the rich young rulers, we're looking at that, but that's not the only way to do things, all my point is there are times where that's the appropriate thing to do. Pray for wisdom to know when those times are. And there are times where just believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is the appropriate thing to do. And we need wisdom to know when those times are. Um, that's but we're in the Richard Rulers, so that's what we're looking at. So when we get, if and when we get to Acts 16, we'll, we'll linger long there as well. Uh, Jim needs a microphone.
4: So do you have any uh Examples of interactions with people who profess to be Christians, whether they're right or wrong. Yeah, but they simply want to ignore these passages in Scripture.
1: And how do you, how do you approach that? How did you approach that? Well, let me ask you clarifying. I'm not sure what you're asking me. Are you asking me people who want to keep on sinning and ignore these passages, or people who live godly lives who don't who which, which one are you dealing with?
4: Well, probably either or both. I mean, okay. uh, look, my experience is there's plenty of churches that preach a gospel but don't want to deal with church discipline. Right. They right. don't, they, they avoid the hard passages about yeah. the cost of discipleship. Mm. I'm sure we probably all know some people like that. Okay. you have any histori- any examples of how you've, interacted on that? I mean, it, could be, a, it could be a way.
1: touchy subject. Yeah, let me think if I've got any safe examples. <laughs> Greg wants names. Um, <laughs> <laughs> see, there's this guy named Fred, see? And, no. Um, oftentimes, it's helping people see that, um, yeah, you can rebuke someone like a jerk. You can correct someone like a jerk. But um, according to Scripture... Uh, better is open rebuke than hidden love. He who flatters a man, he, no, he who rebukes a man will afterwards find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. That what you're really doing is a kindness um, done properly, done rightly. Everything, God is love. Everything Jesus does is loving. But sometimes it doesn't look loving. You know, the parent spanking a kid is loving that kid, assuming they're doing it righteously in a right way. The kid probably doesn't feel love in the moment. And some people standing on the, on the sidelines might not view it as love. Um, so sometimes it's challenging people's understanding of love, what love is. Um, sometimes, I, I think for, for others, it's a sort of narrow view, too narrow view, and that's where I want to try to challenge. Like, for some people, this is a new thought. My big new thought was you got to find some way to factor in Luke 18 with your understanding of the gospel, and I'm not trying to make Luke 18 the only passage on evangelism, but unless you want to critique or criticize our Lord's methodology, you gotta find room to fit it in. You gotta find some way. Here's how I think you can synthesize it, here's how I think you can explain it. But you know, for the person who doesn't accept that, I'd say, okay, what's your explanation? And the attempts that I've found to explain it in other ways, I don't think work. The 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 most popular, there's two variants that I'm aware of, the two most common variants, one this isn't about salvation. This is about discipleship, and that's one of the reasons why I tried to point out. This is about it, t- gaining eternal life. This is about salvation. Um, Jesus is saying, "Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it." Right, and in that, in that word play—you're going to go to hell. Um, I don't think that the uh, this is discipleship, not salvation works. The other, is, and since this text doesn't doesn't even explicitly name repentance, right? Um, the other is to try to define repentance merely as a change of mind about who Jesus is. No, this guy's got—he's got a god. He's got something he worships. He needs to change his mind about that. He needs to cast off Molech and worship God. And he can't do both at the same time. Jesus, plant, you can't serve two men. Pick your team. You may spend the rest of your life fighting the desire to go back and worship money, but coming to Christ, you're, you've picked your team. And so um, that's why I played out this morning the, the, the biblical picture of covenant as, as false religion because I think, it, I think we get that it's incompatible, that, no, I worship Buddha and Jesus. And we say, yeah, it doesn't work. No, no, I, on Sundays I go to church, and then I go to the temple on Thursdays, and I do both. And we'd say, no, nah, that, 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 that dog don't hunt, right? Is that the expression? Okay, I knowingly, willfully, and with intention choose to worship my money, and I want Jesus. Nope. Um, Or Jesus does wrong by this guy. If there's, if if you could have salvation in both, then Jesus messed up here, and he treated this guy harshly and unfairly. And I don't think we can conclude that. So that's that's one one aspect along what you're saying in regards to churches and people who don't practice discipline. it's, uh, it's It's too sentimentalized view of love. We've turned love into nice, and if something doesn't look nice, it's the 11th commandment, "Thou shalt be nice." Um, and you, And you can forget all the other 10. You know that's, that's the 11th commandment. No, you should be nice." And uh, our, our, our culture views any display of authority as corrupt, all powers corrupt. Um, so. That's why parents are afraid to discipline kids these days because they just implicitly feel that exercising authority is corrupt. Um, and so the notion of a church shaming something. we live in a culture, how dare you make anyone feel ashamed? How dare you make anyone feel bad? So everything in our culture is pushing against this. So unless you've got a robust, biblically informed understanding, you're going to find some way to justify it, to not doing it. Um, and so it, it's, it's tough. In some cases, it's simply cowardice. In other places, it might be honest confusion. Um, and then thinking through those things leads you to other conclusions. For instance, one of the reasons why we tightened up our understanding of membership was we don't have the authority to discipline somebody at the church down the street. It's, we simply don't. Jesus tell it to the church, right? So the church does the discipline. So part of one of the reasons why we need to understand who we are as opposed to other churches is who are we responsible for and to whom do we have this authority and responsibility over and making sure the other person agrees with that coming in so they're not surprised. Again, it's not a bait and switch. This is your body, right? Yes. Okay, cool. That's our relationship. We have this responsibility for each other. Good. We're all on the same page. But that was one of the reasons why we, we felt it important to clarify that was if we are going to faithfully exercise discipline and and deal with sin, a prerequisite is self-awareness of who we are and everyone, no one being under false impressions, no one thinking, whoa, wait a second, I didn't know that. One of our six points of membership is, are you aware of the biblical process of dealing with sin and are you willing to participate in whichever way you may need? Maybe it's you need to go talk to somebody, maybe you get called in as a two or three, or maybe somebody's coming and chatting with you. But a healthy body will always be doing steps one and two. A healthy, that'll always be taking place, and it's good. You know, when somebody comes along, hey man, and they hear them, and great, and they go off in a, in a straight direction, or maybe it takes two, can you sit down with two or three of us and chat? That should be taking place regularly, and I believe it is. People just think of discipline as that final step where you exclude, but it's the whole process. And if, go, go to Matthew 18. It's remarkable where Jesus puts this in, in where Matthew puts this in, 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 Ma, in his gospel. Okay? So Matthew 18 is the primary text where we get the, uh, the protocol, if you will, of, uh, of discipline. Pick it up. in So specifically it specifically begins in 15. I want to pick it up in 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom temptation comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So he starts off by letting us know that heaven and hell hang in the balance of our willingness to deal with our own sin. That's the stakes he puts it. He names hell. Jesus talks about hell more than any person in the Bible. And so he gives us the gravity of the scenario. But then look what comes next, the parable of the lost sheep. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you that he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish if your brother sins. This is how you go after a straying sheep. Does that look loving? Matthew 18 is an explanation of how you don't let a sheep perish. So you've got to help people get a vision for that and understand that as much as you may have seen it only be done poorly, um, it is kind, it is good, it is loving, and done rightly, it is, it is righteous and good. But it, it's going to take a Bible study. It's going to take time to chew and think on things. But in its context, this is the picture of going after the sheep. And in Jesus' statements, it's always, and if he hears you, you've won your brother. That's the emphasis. We want to win this person. It's not we want to go kick this person, you know? Um, so it's, it's just, yeah, we've we got to fight back against the culture. we got to fight back against our preconceptions. Let me say one last thing. The other thing we got to fight back against is that because we don't want to do this, we generally wait too long to do it, and then we do it poorly, um, my old mentor, Dr. John Street, used to say, He with the sore toes goes, which is rather than going and talking to someone about sin because we've been convicted and it's loving and kind, we put it off and we put it off till finally we get irritated. Ah, <laughs> and now, are we going in love? Or are we going gently? And it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. You're a jerk. But then you tell yourself, See, that's why I hate confrontation because it's always bad. Well, because every time you do it, you've waited till you get mad. You know what I mean? And so, so, it becomes a feedback loop. And so, people think, no, no, this is always bad. It's always, it always ends poorly. Well, right, because you wait until you're ticked to go. You know? Um, anyway, what were you going to say? So, I this?
4: see in this scenario, really, yeah. it's uh, challenging, easy believism really in a nutshell. Yeah. And so, you know, it typically happens outside of this body of believers. Yeah, people who profess Jesus, you know. So, I guess it comes down to either the Word of God means something to them because they're born again as you present it, or, or it doesn't.
1: Yeah, Jesus' sheep hear His voice. Yeah. And so I don't need to sort out the sheep from the goats. I just take God's Word to the people who claim to be His people and the ones who respond, and it should look like sheep. The ones who don't, that's kind of alarming. God will figure it out you know what I mean like and if they're not part of this body at least if they're part of this body we have responsibility to do more than that but if I interact with people who say they're Christians from other churches other places and they don't respond to God's word it's concerning it's alarming but God will figure it out I don't need to worry about it you know I only have we are responsible for each other Um, it's other's discipleship so beyond that you know yes That he loves. Oh, okay. oh, I'm done. You're talking about Hebrews 13. Wait a second. Microphone. Do you mean Hebrews 13? Uh, Hebrews? Or 12. Oh, discipline. The Hebrews kids, 12. the children. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, let's read that passage. Fan- fantastic. Yes. And again, the argument, and the writer of Hebrews will freely admit, discipline's not fun. It is loving and it is good. And if you don't do it, if you're not disciplined, you're not God's kids. But that's the other piece about uh, the body. The Lord wants his body to reflect what he's doing. So really, when we go and correct somebody, when we do it properly, it's, hey, Dad told me to tell you to stop doing that. He doesn't want you to do that. Right? It's his authority. He, where's Colleen? Colleen asked last week, how do you stop being judgmental? Well, When you come as a herald, as a messenger... You haven't done something against me. I'm not mad at you. How dare you do that to me? It's hey, Dad said we shouldn't be doing that. Dad told us not to play with his tools. Dad told us not to to play in the front yard. You need to come in the backyard. Um, and so, we're simply carrying out as the body what God insists He's doing. So, so pick it up in um, Hebrews 12:3. Consider who, him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So God disciplines his children, and at times, he's called us to participate in that process. In fact, I would suggest to you that if we were more faithful in dealing with sin, the Lord himself would have to do it far less, and it's gonna be worse if God himself is doing it than working through his body. Uh, I'll, I'll say that to people sometimes, like, you know, I, I remember very plainly having a conversation with someone in my living room eight, nine years ago, and um, they had identified they're in, they in a relationship uh, with an unbeliever, and they said those words that always shake, they just, they just, it's terrifying. I know it's wrong, but I don't care. I know God, does, I mean, this is what they're saying, like, I know it's wrong, and I know God doesn't want me to do this, but I don't care. I said, okay, you've made this person God. No, I haven't. You absolutely have. You're telling me I know what the God of the universe wants me to do, and there's something more important. That's God to you. Um, and didn't uh, press I just gave him a warning. I said, look, this is going to end one of two ways. Either you're God's child, and he's going to discipline you, and that's going to be hard. Or you're going to go your own way and be happy and Perish and go to hell. You'll discipline there, and it'll be hard. There's no third outcome where you get the blessing and you're idle. So why don't you just yield now? I'm sure what I'm saying isn't pleasant, but this is better than what's awaiting you either way. And, and turn now. So I, I think that always the, the church should be the first line of defense in that regard, and I think that even as we say hard words, it's going to be far easier than what lies in store if the person persists in their rebellion and stubbornness. So, um, in that instance, the Lord disciplined his child, and it proved to be good in the end. But uh, it was rough there for a bit, you know? Because the Lord disciplines all those whom he receives as sons. But nothing's more frightening than when someone does something like that, goes off, and nothing happens. Because what's the author of Hebrews say? If you don't receive discipline, you're not a kid. The Lord... That's the scariest position to be in when somebody walks off with their idol and is happy and, you know, happy as can be. That's the real terrifying scenario. Um, Kevin in the back needs a microphone. How do, you,
5: how do you bring together the fact that God can discipline us because he's sinless? He can come to us. I mean, he can deal with us because he's without sin. Yet, how do we come to somebody, uh, knowing we struggle with things? How do we? I'm struggling to articulate this, but sp- especially with our children, how do you, how do you come to them with uh, a sin or something that they're struggling with, knowing that we have our own struggles, yeah. too, and it's basically bringing knowledge to him. I think that's how I try to do it, is just bring out the truth. This is what God says. This is the, the fault in what you're doing, knowing that we struggle with the same type of thing, maybe in a different area. Can well, you? I, I, no, I'm no, rambling, I'm absolutely, but...
1: I think the key is to constantly make it clear. I, I want to make it clear, and I'm failing, and I do fail, but I'm failing when my kids think the discipline is because they've made dad mad or they've offended dad. I'm doing it properly when I'm saying, look, here's what God says. Here's what you did. God wants me and mommy as parents to discipline you. And making it clear, I'm, I'm a herald. I'm, I'm a, somebody under orders. It's not, how dare you do that to me? And if I'm communicating that and repeating it, then hopefully they get over time. Dad's doing this because he's trying to be obedient to the Lord, not dad is a tyrant whose wrath you fear. No, but it's too easy to make it I'm bigger than my kids. I could scare them, right? I mean I can I can exercise my will over them. But I'm teaching them I'm the Lord when I do that. When they fear my wrath and my anger without it ever connecting anywhere else is is the goal. I'm becoming the judge, and that's everything that's wrong in, in sinful anger. Um, you know, and so I just recently got challenged on this with one of my own kids. I realized that I was I was treating him too harshly, and he, he was just becoming afraid of me being harsh. He was just just looking a little contempt, a little disgust at something, like, oh, you know what I mean? But I mean, I, I know it's like a slap in the face, and I wasn't communicating God's righteous, you know what I mean, it was just, I made Dad unhappy, and so Dad, you know, let me know that he was disappointed, and it hurt, you know, type of thing. And, you know, that, that's, that's terrible, and when I saw that, God was kind to show it to me, because he disciplines those he loves. Um, it, I need to do some repenting, I have to go talk to my kids the other thing is when you are sending against your kids, confess it to them make it clear you're under the same rule set as them that's another way that will convince them that this, there's this holy God and he set up this order and we're simply trying to be obedient to it when I have to go humble myself and ask my, my son to forgive me for snapping at him because dad too can wrestle with his anger and dad too is a sinful person and then I think it also helps it become clear that I'm not just some otherwise what you learn is it's just good to be on top it's good to have the stick right? No, we're all under authority. We're all, we're all following orders. And so I'd, I'd want to make that as clear as possible. And hopefully in that environment, they're not going to think, you're making it clear. Of course I do the same things. But God hasn't told, you know, mommy to spank daddy when he lies, you know? He's told the police to do that. And he's told, the, you know, what I mean, if you go break a contract, there's a, there's, a, there's a government that bears a sword and might come after you. So there are people in your life that may have that authority, but you know, that's not the way it works here. But here, we're, we're your children in the fear and discipline of the Lord. So that's why we're doing it. But I'd want to make those things over and over and overly clear. Anyone and want to add to that or any, any thoughts with that? Renee? Just so we all... we... Amen. The just like
2: mom's grace.
1: Oh, yeah. No and, every, no, and every now and then I'll just surprise my kids. They'll deserve something. You know what? I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to give you grace. No, I think, that's, I, think that's, I think that's great. You know, surprise them. And every now and then, God's, what's Romans 2 say? Not knowing the Lord's kindness and patience is meant to lead us to repentance. Sometime you realize what you've done, and God hasn't wrecked you. And you're like, thank you. Thank you for letting me figure that out. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, there, there are times that happens, too. And so that's, that's great, too. I mean, to, to show them what grace is. You know, you deserve This, here's what's going to happen instead. You get some grace. Absolutely, absolutely. Any anyone else? Oh, all the way in the back. Patrice needs a microphone. I can just you know I consistently get thank yous from the five people listening to the podcast. Um, They they really appreciate it.
6: Um, Well, it wasn't a question, but just um, something that um, at least my husband and I. My husband emphasizes and reminds me of um, in connection with Kevin just said, but that I don't know where it is where it talks about you know, you go to your brother if you examine the speck in your own eye before mm. you It's so, certainly
1: Luke 6. It's, it's also in the other synoptics, but it's Luke 6.
6: Yeah, but that, it just reminds me that we, we still both have something in our eye. You mm. know, it's not that you're without sin or you're without yeah. fault, but you examine yourself to see, you know, am I like habitually in this sin or something that we might be struggling with similarly or am I seeking to walk in repentance and I want the same for you um, so it's, it's just not that you're without the sin you just are seeking for them to walk in repentance as you are trying to as well
1: Right, right. well on the first time when you go one on one you're hoping and in the best case scenario it's just something they didn't notice and they notice it and they're like oh wow my bad I'm sorry thank you because the assumption is we all are trying to imperfectly follow Christ in the same direction and so when you see someone start to veer off to the right, you just sort of come on like, "Hey, hey, the, the road's over that way." And most of the time, when you're dealing with the sheep, you get, "Oh, yeah, thanks." You know, and you, I don't know if you realize that, but you were really kind of being a jerk back there. And the assumption is that my friend doesn't want to be a jerk, and when he sees that he was being a jerk, he'll go, "Oh, whoa, what was I thinking?" Right? Um, sometimes that's not what happens, and then you got to get two or three or whatever. But ideally, it's just course correction. You know, um, and, and we sh- we're doing it all the time with each other. We're all sort of, hey, that way, knucklehead, you know. Um, and it's not some righteous, holier-than-thou, you wicked sinner, sinner. You know, it's just, hey, I think, I think you lost focus for a minute, that way. And that's why, in a sense, leaving someone be is really one of the worst things you can do. Because what you're doing is two things. If you're saying, they'd never listen to me, at the end of the day, you're saying they're not a Christian, that's what you're saying. That's, that's what bugs me with the people who want to say it's kind to not deal with sin. You've basically just made yourself judge, jury, and executioner. I have decided they won't listen to me, which means they don't have the Spirit. And they are just sheep because Jesus' sheep hear his voice. Jesus' sheep follow him. I've decided that and I'm not going to tell them. And I'm going to leave them in that course even though they're headed for peril and they're, headed for, they're going to reap what they sow, but I don't care. Turn to, turn to Leviticus 19. We'll end our time this morning here. So, Jesus has identified in Luke 10 what the second greatest commandment is, which is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. I want to look at that passage in its original context in Leviticus 19. Um, Paul David Tripp, in his uh, book Instruments in the Deemer's Hands, first pointed this out to me, and it, it just blew me out of the water. We think of loving your neighbor as yourself, and it's certainly in the parable of the Good Samaritan, it's about you know, using your resources, your money, and your time to help somebody. That is not what's going on in Leviticus, um, Leviticus 19. There it is, okay. 17 and 18. And think of that whole put-off, put-on. Not this, but this, okay? You shall not hate your brother in your heart. What will you do? You shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I think if you unpack that, what you get is this. The second you begin to become angry at somebody, they've offended you, you either can go talk to them or begin hating them. And that hatred will manifest itself actively or passively. The cold shoulder, the bearing the grudge, that's hatred, just low levels of hatred. We don't like calling it hatred, but it's just low levels of hatred. You're hating them. Um, or actively, you're getting angry. Or you can go talk to them. And loving your neighbor as yourself is doing the latter and not the former. Um, which I think the more I've thought about it, the more it makes sense. It's a whole lot easier. What should you rather do? Go help someone move or go have to talk to someone about some sin in their life that's going to be awkward? I'm guessing most of you would rather sign up well, for, the, for the moving party. Not everyone, but some people. So um, the more I've thought of it, the more profound I think it is that the fundamental act of love is going and talking to your neighbor. And so you take the, the story of the Good Samaritan again, and what are you doing when you see somebody trapped in sin? You're seeing this guy beaten and bloody on the side of the road, and you think it's going to be messy. I'm going to get some blood on me, and I'm not going to get wrong. it's going to slow me down. I'm not going to get I'm not going to get done what I want to get done today. And you just walk on by, and that's that's the opposite of love. That's hate. It's disinterest. You're not worth my time. Because that's the other thing you're saying when you see somebody caught in something and you don't do anything. First, you judge them in your heart. You conclude they're not really a Christian. I mean, you may not say that, but that's what, I won't treat them as a Christian because they won't listen to me. Because they're not Jesus. Instead of saying, they have the Spirit. And there's a living God. And so I need to go talk to them. and the, well, I should hope and work under the assumption, yes, of course, they're going to listen to me. I should be surprised if they don't. No, 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 they're not going to listen to me. They've avoided the Spirit. Um, I, I've quoted many times, 2 Timothy 2, 23 and 24, the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, a kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to knowledge of the truth. That's how I should, I should go in the hopes, hey, I, I I'm going to hope the Spirit's going to show up and, and grant repentance and help us see what's going on here. Nope, won't do that. And I'm seeing them on the side of the road, they're, 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 they're caught in some issue, and I just walk on by because I can't be bothered, That would take too much hassle, I'd get messy. You know, we want a nice, polite, simple, dignified faith, and you're hating them. And, and so that, that Leviticus 19 thing clicks to me, so whenever I find myself getting mad at somebody or anytime I find myself getting irritated at somebody, I gotta go talk to them, don't I? Because I'm realizing I'm hating them, and I'm just, it's just going to grow. The resentment, the, the bitterness, the judgment, it's just going to grow. So now I need to make sure I go talk to them rightly, which starts with pulling logs out of your own eye, getting your spirit right with God. And Lord, I, I need to do this humbly. I need to do this in kindness. I need to do this in hope. Um, so I might need to spend an hour or two on my knees just getting myself right to go chat with this person. But then i got to go do it. I've got to love my neighbors myself. Or I'm going to hate them. It's that simple. Um, and that's the second greatest commandment. As this ties back even to your question. This is how you help people get a vision for others this is good. Churches that don't deal with sin hate people. It's as simple as that. Christians that don't deal with sin hate their neighbor. It's as simple as that. On that note, we will close. See you all next week.